Well, as we are ending, this is the last week, if you're new with us, seventh week in a seven-week series in the book of Micah. Uh, And one thing that has really hit me that I think has hit you too is just how emotional the prophets are. They were emotional men. And they would move from one deep and heavy and profound emotion to one other just very opposite and profound emotion. So for the last seven weeks, it feels like we've just hopped all over the place emotionally. We started out just even trembling at the, at the judgment of God in Micah 1. And by Micah 3, we were hanging our heads at the injustice that is around us. And then uh, in awe of a picture of true justice in Micah 6, verse 8, and, and, and then just left amazed and hopeful at the picture of the coming kingdom in chapter 4, and then last week, oh, saddened again at the, at the darkness around us as we wept over that. We've bounced all over the place, and that comes to an end today as we close things out. Uh, he ends the book in the very blessed place of all, just full of wonder before the love of God. And that's where we're going to land today, our hearts in awe, looking at God's deep love for his people. And I hope we just leave here encouraged, more in love with him, ready to live in holiness as we marvel together at God's covenant love for his people, his unbreakable love for us. Let me give you the context of these words because we have been skipping around a lot. I haven't preached everything in it. Uh, Micah closes the book out with a hymn of four stanzas. You might think of it like a psalm or like one of the hymns we sing that has four verses or stanzas to it. Uh, And the first stanza, if you got your Bible open, you can see it. It starts in verse 8 there. Uh, It's the words of Jerusalem rising up to the enemy that is about to conquer them. They think that Assyria is about to come and conquer them. In truth, their king will repent and Assyria will fail to conquer them. But generations later, Babylon will conquer them. So this is Jerusalem singing out to Assyria and then Babylon saying, I know that I am about to fall, but don't rejoice, don't taunt me, because I know I'm going to rise. So Jerusalem has faith that even as they are broken down, the Lord will raise them back up. Then the second and third stanzas, which go from verse 11 to 17, give us a lot of pictures of what that's going to be like. There's a dialogue between the prophet and the city and the Lord himself. And the Lord says, I will raise you up. I will make you great again. And then in verse 15, he even compares that to the Exodus. He says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show marvelous things. So one day he is going to raise Jerusalem back up and it is going to be as dramatic as the Exodus was going to be a big deal when it happens. And so Micah, left in awe of this, spins the fourth verse, the last stanza of the hymn, praising God for his steadfast love, that he would even bring Jerusalem back after all that she has done against him. Let's read the words of the Lord, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show steadfast love to Jacob and faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The words of the Lord. 
Well, with that hymn, our Lord amazes his people with his steadfast love for us. We're going to get this morning a picture of the very depth of God's heart, a place that we may have wondered if we would ever be able to go, if we go all the way to the very core of God's nature and who he is, and we get to his heart, and then we get down to the bottom of his heart. What is there? What is at the depths of our God? Micah's answer is, he's like no one else. At his depth is steadfast love for us. If, if we were to walk, if he were a house and we were to walk into this great house and go into the deepest room of the house and then the deepest closet in the deepest room of the house and then go into the filing cabinet and reach into the back drawer and pull it out and say, what is at the very core of who God is? The word would be steadfast love, covenant love for his people. We're going to get a view of that this morning and I hope it leaves you in awe as Micah is right here. This is what makes God different from everybody else that we know, every false God out there, and anything we have ever looked to for hope or for salvation. We see the word steadfast love twice here. You're going to see it first at the end of verse 18 in the last line, he delights in his steadfast love. And then we see it again in verse 20, he will show steadfast love to Abraham. Now, when it says that, it is translating a word that we have seen once before in Micah. We saw it in Micah 6, 8. We are to love steadfast love, it says, or kindness. A word that has no English equivalent, that translators have a hard time finding a good word for in our Bibles. And so your translation may say loving kindness, if you're using a different translation from us. Or it might say unfailing love, or it may say steadfast love like ours. If you're a fan of the Psalms and you read the Psalms often, you'll see this word very often. In fact, in our call to worship today, we saw it a few times there. You can turn back even to page five and see it in verse two. He says, for I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. And he goes into the covenant that has been made to David. Or you may think of the psalm that repeats the frame, his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of Jacob, his steadfast love endures forever. This is what is at the depths of God's very heart, steadfast love for his people. All the translators would say, whatever word I picked, it's not good enough, right? The concept is bigger than any word that we can give it. Best word I might be able to give you is, is covenant love. It is his covenant love for his people. It is the love that moves him, even when we are unfaithful to him, to keep all of his promises to us. He says, I have sworn with an oath, I would not leave them, and I love them. And so we're his, and he's ours forever. It is also the love that moved him to make these solemn promises to us, the promises of the gospel, the promises of the coming kingdom. Why would he choose to make promises like that to a people who had rebelled against him? Because of a deep love for us, a love that moves him to make these covenants, a love that moves him to keep these promises to us. You might think of a faithful husband as an analogy. Uh, he's married to his wife. His wife has just done something to wound his soul and make him desire to just leave the whole thing, but he is a faithful man, and he says, I've made a promise, I've made a vow, and I love her, and so I'm staying. I'll be good to her. Now, part of why he's staying, part of why he's being faithful is because he made a vow. They're in a covenant together. 
But that's not even the core of it. That's not even the depths of it. Why did he enter into that covenant with her in the first place? You've probably been to a wedding. You've probably seen the looks in their eyes as they exchange their vows. Why do we enter into these covenants? Because, because he loved her. That's why he entered in. So he loved her so much to make promises and vows to her. And now, because of the love and the vows, when things get hard, he loves her enough to stay with her. This is something of the picture of the faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping love of our God. And this is what Micah says makes him different from everyone else and everything else. The steadfast, unfailing, generous, loving kindness of our God. If you journey all the way into his depths, that's what he is. As the New Testament even says, the one who doesn't know God does not know love because God is love. So Micah gives us then three things that we can count on God for because of his steadfast love. And we're going to work through them one at a time. I want to say all three points, and as I do, they'll all begin with because of his steadfast love. And and then we'll fill that out with something. Uh, The first one we see in verse 1, because of his steadfast love, he delights to forgive us. He does not delight in anger. He delights in his steadfast love. And if you're one of his people, he delights in forgiving you. If you're not one of his people, he would delight to have you come and receive Jesus in faith because he would rather the wicked not perish. He would rather that you not perish. He would rather you come because he delights to forgive. He doesn't delight to hold on to anger. And what we're looking at here is, is something so profound about his nature and something we often get wrong. You can see these last two lines. He doesn't retain his anger forever. So, His anger is not an eternal, unchangeable part of who he is. He doesn't retain that forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He prefers that over anger. And what we're seeing there is that there are some parts of God's character, uh, some things that we would attribute to God. We'd see him acting certain ways in the Bible and say, yeah, God is loving and he is just and holy. Many of these things are unchangeable parts of his character. They are, they're who he is, and they're never going to change. God's holiness, for instance, he will always be holy. Before the beginning of time, he was holy. Right now, he is holy. He will always be holy. And you can't do anything to make him more or less holy. He just is holy. His justice is the same way. He was just in the beginning. He is just now. He will be just forever. Uh, his, his hatred of sin. He never liked sin. He's not going to like it any more tomorrow than he likes it now. It just abhors sin. Many of these things are part of his character, unchangeable things about him. Other things we would attribute to God, like perhaps compassion, and in this case, anger, are things that are responses to something else he sees. His anger, for instance, is not an unchangeable part of his character. It's just a response to sin. That means you have to do something to make him angry. He's not just an angry God who just is angry like he just is holy. No, if you want to make God angry, you must must sin against him. Uh, And these sorts of things, we measure them by how slow or quick is he to feel this way and become like this. Uh, Compassion might be one of those. The Lord is quick to compassion. You can pray to him and say, Lord, will you show compassion? He's quick to do it. 
you can do things. You, 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 he will respond to you and perhaps become more or less compassionate because you asked him to show compassion. But you can see this is different from something like holiness. You're not going to pray, Lord, would you be holy in how you handle this? And he's not going to change and become more or less holy. So his anger is not an immutable part of who he is. Before the beginning of time when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sat in triune goodness, God was not angry because it's not part of his nature. It's not who he is. But when Satan rebelled against him, well, because he is just and because he is always holy, because he always hates sin, then his anger was aroused against Satan. And then when we sinned against him, because he is just always, and because he is holy always, and because he hates sin always, then his anger was aroused. This means something very profound for every Christian. It means that you do not have to do anything and cannot do anything to provoke God's love for you. He just loves you. That's an immutable part of who he is. So he is not looking upon you and saying, well, because you did this and this, okay, I love you. Now, his anger can work that way. Because you did this and this, I'm angry. But his love does not work this way. So one writer I read recently said this very well. He said, you have to provoke God's anger, but you don't have to provoke God's love because love is just who he is. His steadfast love endures forever. This is so different from how we expect him to be, isn't it? Oftentimes I ask people, uh, on an average day, how do you think God feels about you? And almost everybody answers the same way. Eh, probably disappointed, right? That's probably how God feels about me. It's almost as if the creed of a modern Christian is his disappointment endures forever. But that is not what the scriptures say. His steadfast love endures forever. Every moment of every day that you have ever existed, the depths of God's heart toward you was love. He did not love you more. He did not love you less. He just loves you. This is because of who he is, not because of who you are. That is good news, isn't it? Is anyone like him? There's, there's no one like him. Is anyone in your life like this? Just loves you unconditionally and always, no matter what you have done. No, there's no one like this. Is any false God like that? No, no one is like that. But here we are this morning glimpsing at the depths of Jesus Christ's love for you. Now, to be sure... For those who will not come to him and receive his grace, their sin remains upon them. And if this is you, your sin remains upon you. And God is always holy, and he's always just, and he always hates sin. And so if you won't come and receive grace and receive that love, your sin remains upon you, and forever then his anger will remain upon you. At the end of your life, you will be enduring his anger forever because he's always holy and he's always just and he always hates sin and you're wanting to hang on to yours. But even in that, his heart will be full of sorrow because his love endures forever also. 
And so the offer he makes to you is, I would rather you turn from your ways and live. I would rather you come and receive the grace of my son. This is why I sent my son to the world, because he loved the whole world. And that includes everybody here that follows him and everyone who does not. His love reached out to everyone. And he says, I send my son. He will live perfectly. He will die in the place of those who trust him. And now anyone who is willing to trust Jesus Christ and become one of his people, he says, my love reaches to you as well. You can come in. You can receive grace and forgiveness for all of your sin because his love is the very deepest part of who he is. No one's like him, are they? Oh, who is like God? So that's the very first thing we can count on because of God's steadfast love. He delights to forgive. He doesn't hang on to his anger forever. That's why other scriptures say, like Exodus says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Because his anger can go up and down, it can fluctuate, and he's slow to get angry. But he's abounding in steadfast love. That's why I think it's the Psalms that say his anger is but a moment, but his steadfast love endures forever. Because it's just who he is. And that is why, Christian, you can always count on his love for you. He looks upon you and says, I love him. I love her. And there's nothing that will ever change that. So there's the first thing we can count on God from. Because of his steadfast love, he delights to forgive us. He does not delight in anger. Second, we see in verse 19, because of his steadfast love, God will crush our sin like he crushed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Because of our steadfast love, God will crush our sin like he crushed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Now, at this point in the hymn, the reader would already be thinking of the Exodus because of verse 15. That's not part of our text today. But he has already said, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So their minds are already back to the Exodus. And now in verse 19, he says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and he will cast all of our sins in the depths of the sea. So as the Egyptian army was cast into the depths of the sea, the Lord says, the day is coming where I will take your sin and I will cast your sin into the depths of the sea so that it cannot pursue you anymore. What's going on here is the enemies of the people of God, of Israel in the Old Testament, show us how God deals with our great and eternal enemies Three great enemies entered the story in Genesis 3, Satan, sin, and death. Satan slithered his way into a perfect garden. He deceived Eve and then Adam into sinning against God. So now sin is part of the story. And because of that, they die. And so now, Satan, sin, death, they're in the story. And these three great enemies hang over everything we try to do. Satan is always there. And he's always harassing us. Our sins against God constantly haunting us. And the fact that we know our death is coming, hanging over us. These are the great enemies of the people of God. And when Israel defeats, say, the Amalekites or the Egyptians, or the, 
that is showing us what he will do to our great and cosmic enemies one day. That's going on here as he says, as in the days when I took you out of Egypt, I am going to cast your sins to the bottom of the sea. He focuses here on sin, not on Satan, not on death, but on sin. And when you think through your life, I think you would probably have to even admit, yeah, a great enemy in my life is my own sin. It's haunting me. It's chasing me. It pursues me forever, and I can't get rid of it. How many times have you just been going about your business, and something you did in the past just pops up? Hey, you did that. Don't forget that you did that. You're a bad person. What does happen to you? It happens to me all the time. I was laying awake, falling asleep in bed about two weeks ago, and all of a sudden, some minor thing I did when I was in high school came to my mind, and it was just, you did that. The crazy thing is I can't even remember what it was right now. I've already forgotten what it was. But these sins just haunt us like this. All of a sudden, something pops up, and it's like, hey, you did that. And you, you can move around the world and live on a different continent, and it just pops up right there, just chasing you. Wherever you go, a sense of guilt, a sense of you did that, and forever you will be the person who did that. There is an enemy that is pursuing us, and that we just can't stop and, and put down and make it stop doing what it's doing. So in that sense, our sins are chasing us and pursuing us. And in another sense, they do as well. Many of us are trying to put sin behind us and leave certain habits and sinful things we are doing, and it's not going perfectly, right? If I just named anxiety, anger, lust, and pornography— probably half of the room would say, I am trying to put one of those down, and it's going okay or worse, but not great, right? The desire to keep doing what sin wants you to do, it just chases you around, and you can say, I'm done with that. I'm never getting angry again, and then two days later, your temper flares up, and sin's like, here I am. Do you want to play again? And you're like, oh, okay, fine, right? It's always there. It's always pursuing you, always following you around, And our hearts know, even if we're convinced that what we do doesn't matter and follow your heart and you do you, and we can convince ourselves of this, but our hearts know that one day this much must catch up to us, right? Surely I'm not going to get away with all of this. There will be an end to the road at some point. So that scenario of you are running and trying to get away from your sins and you know there will be an end to the road, This is exactly where Israel was when their enemies were pursuing them out of Egypt. Their former masters that they are running from. People who had the power to say, stick your face in the dirt right now. And you had to do whatever they said. They're running from those masters. And the army is pursuing them, right? It won't leave them wherever they go. It's following them. They know the seashore is right there. And soon they're going to come up to it, right? End of the road. We can't go any farther. It's going to catch up to me and it's going to get me, right? They're going to get me. So they tremble there in fear as their enemies are coming right to them. Nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. And the Lord says, Moses, lift up your hands. I'm going to part the waters and make a way. So the the sea opens and they run through on dry land. Coming out on the other side safe. But their enemy won't stop pursuing them, right? Their enemy goes right into the sea. And so God, in one dramatic moment, 
took that sea and just crushed their enemies. Now they look back and, and there are dead bodies on the seashore. They can't get us now, right? We're really free. This is what the Lord did for you, Christian, the day Jesus died. And what he will do for you when he returns. The very same thing, he crushed those sins that have been following you around. So the way he did it was Jesus came to earth. He lived without sin even once, did not deserve to die, certainly did not deserve to be executed by the government, but, but gave himself up to that, gave himself up to the Jewish leaders who handed him over to Rome. He gave himself up to Rome and ultimately gave himself up to the plan of God that he would die for the sins of his people. And he's, he carries his own beam up the hill to be crucified, does it all voluntarily until his body fails and someone else has to carry it for him and they nail him to this cross. He lays there, hangs there in agony and what the Lord was doing was for every one of us who trust in him, he was taking all those sins that pop up and haunt you, all those sins that pop up and say, hey, don't you want to do this again? He's taking every last one of them and just putting them upon his son. And then in a moment, crash, just crush the whole thing. And our Lord cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathes his last and yields up his spirit. Our sins in a moment were crushed, even as the Son of God was crushed. And Isaiah says it was, it was the will of the Lord to crush him because he bore our sins. He bore our iniquities. The, the chastisement of, of us was, was rested upon, upon him. That's why it was crushed, so that our sins could be crushed. That's why the New Testament says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we'd become the righteousness of God. And so th that is something that is true for everyone who will become one of God's people and trust him in faith. And that offer is even yours right now. You can trust him and, and, and that becomes true of you. Your sins crushed that day on the cross. And so that's you. If your faith is in Jesus, that puts you in just a remarkable place right now. Now those sins that, that haunt you and, and they come up, you look back on them and it's like an Israelite looking at a crushed body on the seashore. There he is, a soldier who a day ago was giving you commands. His body laying on the ground, his helmet fallen off of his head, the hand that held the whip he used to use against you, just laying open and the whip fallen beside it. And you look back and you say, he is defeated. He can't tell me what to do anymore. Now I'm really free, right? And, and so that means when it comes to your old sins, those habits that you couldn't put down, the Lord gives you freedom and power now to say no. Now, you can choose to go back to your old master and say, okay, oh, man, let's get your helmet back on you. Let's put, let's put your sword back in your hand. You can go and do what it wanted you to do. You can still sin. You can choose that, but you don't have to anymore because he doesn't have that power and authority over you anymore. 
So you're given as a Christian the power by the Spirit of God in you to say no to sin. And what's more than that, you're given as a Christian the freedom from all eternal consequences of your sin. In heaven, you will not pay one bit for anything that you've ever done. Now, those are, that's true in some ways today, right? Today, you could still choose to go and do what sin wants, or you can choose not to. And today, you're free from eternal consequences, but not yet from earthly consequences, right? You still may have needle holes in your arm. You still may have a child who won't talk to you. You still may have served prison time because of things that you did. But one day, you'll be free to the point that even the earthly consequences are done, right? You won't suffer at all because of what you did. And one day, not only will you have the power to say no to sin, you'll no longer have the power to say yes, right? Never to sin again. And so on that day, when Jesus returns, he will take away sin forever. And it won't be laying there on the seashore. You can go back to it if you want to. It will be at the bottom of the sea, and you're not even getting to it. This is what we can count on from our God because of his steadfast love. How deep does his love go? That deep. He has crushed your sin, Christian, as dramatically as he crushed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Amen. Yeah, indeed. So there's number two. Because of his steadfast love, uh, he has crushed our sin as he has crushed the Egyptian army. Lastly, and most briefly, because of his steadfast love, he will keep his promises. All right, this is who he is. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And so the last verse, verse 20, tells us, you'll show steadfast love to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. These are men long dead. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So the idea here is that Jerusalem is falling, but she knows that she will rise again because she must. Otherwise, God isn't keeping his promises. And so the confidence is you're going to show faithfulness to those promises to Abraham, Jacob, even to David and, and to others. And you're going to do it by making Jerusalem great one day in the future. So what's going on here is we have, we have promises that the Lord made first to Abraham. He called him from, from worshiping idols. And he said, Abraham, I know that you are, are an old man and your wife was barren and is now past childbearing age, but she's going to bear you many descendants, a whole nation of descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. And, and I'm going to take those descendants and I'm going to put them in this land that you call Canaan, and now we call it Israel. Right? They're going to thrive there as a nation. And one of those descendants is going to bless every nation in the world. And so they just waited on this to happen. Abraham eventually had one son, and through that son came so many descendants. And then Isaac was his son. Jacob, mentioned here, was his grandson. That was Isaac's son. Uh, many years later, David is sitting on a throne. And we read of it today in our, in our call to worship. The Lord made a promise to David. Your son will reign forever on your throne. And so David's waiting. Okay, I got a son who's going to come and reign forever. And so here's Jerusalem about to get sacked. And she says, well, I know that we're going to come back. Otherwise, David can't have a son on the throne. Abraham can't have a son who's a blessing to everyone. And what the New Testament says is that all those promises find their yes in, in Jesus. It's him who fulfills all of them. He is 
the great descendant of Abraham who is a blessing to everybody. Anyone from any tribe, tongue, and nation can come to him and be blessed. And he's making a people of his own of every tribe and tongue and nation in the whole world. Uh, He is the descendant of David who will reign on David's throne forever, not just over Israel, but over the whole world. And all of us who come to him are grafted into Israel's promises so that Abraham does have as many descendants as the stars in the sky because it even includes us on the other side of the world. He's thinking maybe a city, maybe a nation. I doubt he had in mind that there was a whole other continent on the other side of the world where people one day will say they are sons of Abraham. But here's what Abraham has, right? The Lord keeps his promises and he does it in Jesus Christ. Now, why does he do that? Why are his promises so serious to him? Because at the depth of his character is steadfast love, unfailing love. He is the faithful one. He is the loving one. And so as we wait for this Jesus to return and to fulfill finally all these promises, we, like Jerusalem, can say, you will show faithfulness to our fathers. You will show faithfulness to us. We know that because of who you are. So this is our God. This is his steadfast love for us. He makes promises. He keeps them. He makes them with a solemn vow. His nature is to delight in love and not in anger. He has crushed our sins like he crushed the Egyptian army. And he has promises to keep to our fathers and to us that he will keep. That is a God worthy of all of your worship. Is there a part of your life that you don't want to hand over to him? You'll feel like you can trust him with. Friend, he is worthy of all of your life, all of your worship. Is there a way that he calls worship from you in the scripture that you're not willing to give over to him? As we gaze into his beauty this morning, oh friend, see how worthy he is of everything everything that you have. He will keep us to the end. And friend, he is worthy of all of your trust. All right, let's pray together.